Hello and welcome to another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. My name is Andrei Matyshak and I work as the Deputy Head of Foreign Desk in Slovak Daily Pravda. When was the last time the Labour Party in Norway didn't win the parliamentary election? In 1924. And the series of victories didn't stop on September 13. Why the Labour Party won only 26.3% of votes, which is historically one of the weakest results, they will still have 48 seats in parliament and everybody expects that they will establish a governing coalition with the socialist left and the center party. And that would mean that all five Nordic countries will be run by the center-left governments. But does it really matter? I talked to Nicholas Eilert, an associate professor of political science at Southern University. His main academic interest is in comparative European politics with a focus on political parties. Listen to our conversation. I know that these are decades of history and the world is constantly changing, but broadly speaking, is it possible to say what are the main reasons why the Labour Party in Norway won all the parliamentary elections that took place in the country from 1927? Of course, they did not run the country all the time, but it still looks like a remarkable achievement. There's no simple answer to, to that question, which uh, applies almost as strongly in Sweden. In fact, the, uh, the Swedish Social Democratic Party, over the same sort of period that you were talking about, most of the 20th century, up until around about the 1970s. And to, to a lesser extent, the, the Danish Social Democratic Party, too. They, they dominated uh, politics in these three Scandinavian countries, less so in Finland and less so, too, in, in Iceland. But those three Scandinavian countries were very definitely dominated by Social Democrats. It probably has something to do with historic patterns of industrialization around about the start of the 20th century. Uh, I think in Sweden in particular, but probably Norway and Denmark too, uh, industrialization came quite late and quite, quite quickly. Why was this important for the Social Democrats? These were favorable conditions for the rapid unionization of the workforce, uh, the urban workforce, but also to an extent the rural workforce. Uh, and this provided a very good basis for organizing social democratic parties. You know, they have very deep and intimate connections to the trade unions and, uh, and they, they, um, they could exploit these organizational advantages to win elections. Um, and then I think uh, if you wind the clock forward a little bit to the, the 30s and then, and then after the Second World War, these parties were successful first in mitigating the effects of the economic crisis in Europe in the 1930s that had such disastrous effects for the continent. And then were also in power in the period after the Second World War. Uh, and so uh, during this, this time of economic boom, there, was, uh, there were good times and there were, there were resources available to build up welfare states. And I think these uh, measures were, were of course popular uh, and could cement the, uh, the support that these parties had amongst working class voters and um, amongst uh, some middle class voters as well. And this put th these parties in really, really strong political positions in the respective party systems. 
things have changed a bit in the last 20 or 30 years, but I think these sorts of big uh, historical, sociological and economic factors were probably important in explaining why they got so strong in the first place. Except what you said, and you mentioned that, that things have changed a bit in the last, let's say, two decades. Are there any special reasons why the Labour Party also this time won the general vote in Norway? What we've seen in Norway, but other European countries too, is uh, the decline of class consciousness and class identity for many voters in these countries. And I'm, I'm looking at Britain, I'm looking at uh, Belgium, the Netherlands, France, Germany too, really much of Northwestern Europe. We saw class identity decline, people, society become more individualistic. People didn't see it as their, almost their duty anymore to vote for a, a particular party. They're, they're much more dis discerning and, and, and choose more, more flexibly, depending on the issues of the day. So we see much more volatility and much less uh, party loyalty as well. But a lot of these lost votes, which have hit the Social Democrats very badly across the continent, but also hit, hit the other big class-based parties as well. A lot of these lost votes um, haven't all been lost to the right of the party systems. They've also been lost to, to newer parties of the left, uh, sometimes the Greens, sometimes uh, more radical parties uh, to, to the left of the Social Democrats, and sometimes uh, more liberal centrist parties have, have drifted left in the last few years. And all this has meant that even as the Social Democrats as, a, as parties have become smaller, much smaller, the left in total has remained competitive. And if the Social Democrats are still the biggest party on the left, which they are, then they have good claims to lead coalition governments of, of the broader left, even if they don't dominate them as much as they used to. As the Labour Party lost one seat compared to the elections in 2017, can they even call it a victory now? Maybe the result was more about conservative losing as they lost nine seats, wasn't it? What is, what is a victory? What is an election victory? Everything is relative. For the Norwegian Labour Party, yes, it, it, it produced a worse result uh, than last time, which of course doesn't really feel like a victory, as you say. On the other hand, um, the bloc with which uh, the left, the, the Labour Party is associated, won a comfortable majority, so the left takes over. And it's also about uh, expectations. Uh, the opinion polls up until very recently were suggesting a much bigger decline for the Labour Party. And so when the result comes in and it's better than expected, then everybody feels happy and euphoric. Again, how do you define victory in a multi-party system? Maybe leading a block that wins a majority, maybe that counts. Yes, of course, you are right. In the multi-party system, when you are able to create a government and run the country, you can claim the victory no matter of your electoral result. But interestingly, when we look at the results, arguably the biggest winner is the more radical Red Party. They gained seven seats, now they will have eight lawmakers. How did that happen? They obviously ran a good campaign, a successful campaign. They, these, these, these things are important. Uh, but I think their success is, is very probably another example of how the, the sort of the class basis of party politics that, that we got so used to uh, over so many years has broken down. Much of the working class vote that used to go very largely to the social democratic parties in Europe has now drifted over to the right-wing parties. We've seen this phenomenon in Britain, for example, where you have a big 
section of working class voters now voting for the Conservative Party. In uh, other European countries like, like Germany, but also Scandinavia, there's a, there's a sometimes called a right wing populist party or a radical right party uh, that, that, that collects that sort of working class vote. And we see that in uh, Norway with the, with the Progress Party. At the same time, you see uh, well-educated, often urban, often rather well-off voters drifting to the left. And so you find that the social democratic parties uh, across uh, Western uh, Europe these days are, are now really looking like very much middle-class parties. And probably the, the radical left parties, such as this, this Marxist party, happy to call itself a Marxist party, red, you know, the, the, this is very much a, a middle-class radical party. You know, there are lots of incidental or contingent factors that, that, that can contribute to a particular electoral advance in any particular moment. But, but the longer term trend is of a confusion of class politics and, and, and middle class drifting, sections of the middle class drifting to the left, sections of the working class drifting to the right. How important the campaign was the debate about relation of Norway with the EU? I won't claim that I've, I've, I've got very, very detailed familiarity with, with, with the campaign, but of course I, I followed it uh, as, as, as best I could. My impression is that the Norway, the, the, the EU debate in Norway remains absolutely, if not dead, then, then <laughs> comatose. You know, I don't, I don't think any serious political force thinks that EU membership will come on the agenda for Norway in the, in the foreseeable future. The only question that has arisen in the last few years is whether Norway should continue to be a member of the European Economic Area. Uh, and now that, that Britain has, has left the European Union, I think the development of, of its economy separate to the European single market, I think that, that may influence the way that Norway sees its own future vis-a-vis the, the European economic area. But for the moment, I think there's a certain status quo, there's a certain st stability there. Um, it's, it's, it wasn't a big issue in the election campaign anyway. On the other hand, the future of gas and oil exploration was definitely a big issue. The oil sector in Norway accounts for 14% of GDP, as well as for 40% of its exports and 160,000 direct jobs. How important this debate will be also for the future Norwegian government? Climate change and what to do about it was a big issue in the Norwegian election campaign, which makes it uh, uh, on the surface rather surprising that the Greens uh, didn't do nearly as well as they'd hoped. Uh, but I think environmentalism has become almost a valence issue in, in Norway. You know, everybody is an environmentalist these days to a greater or lesser extent. Uh, and so um, there were other parties that could, that could plausibly, incredibly claim to be the ones that wanted to protect the environment. And that, that, that lack of uh, ownership of the environmental issue was a, obviously a weakness for the Green Party in Norway. Having said that, there is awareness that Norway's economy and a lot of jobs are still very much dependent on the, the oil part of the economy. And um, I think the, the Labour Party will be very, very relieved that they didn't have to negotiate with the Greens after the election result. They have, with their two allies, a, a majority, a comfortable parliamentary majority. So they don't have to negotiate with the Greens about about securing their support for a parliamentary majority, because this is a really difficult issue for 
a party that still has many working class supporters, but also has, as I said, an increasingly middle class membership, uh, which cares much more about saving the environment than, than saving jobs in the oil industry. This will still be a big dilemma for the, for the Labour led government, um, because the Socialist Left Party, which everyone expects to take part in the, the new coalition, they have a very environmentalist profile and will certainly make demands about uh, Norway's uh, future oil drilling. So this won't be easy, um, but it's perhaps some consolation for the Labour Party that it would have been even more difficult if they'd had to negotiate with two environmentalist parties if the Greens had had a better result rather than just, just one, the Socialist Left Party. Then how complicated it will be for the Labour leader Mr. Jonas Garstorha to establish the presumed government with the Socialist Left and with the Centre Party? I think it will be achievable. Uh, I would be surprised if uh, the negotiations take so long or, or, or fail completely. The, the Centre Party is, is an interesting party uh, in Norway. It belongs to the, the family of Centre Parties in the Nordic countries that has its roots in the, the countryside, in the farmers' population. But then you see interesting di diversity amongst the development of these agrarian parties in, in the Nordic countries. The, the one in Denmark has now become the biggest party of the right, uh, whereas uh, the one in Norway uh, has become very much associated with the left bloc. It used to have, used to create governments with, with other parties of the centre-right, other uh, middle-class parties, you could say. But now it's quite strongly associated with the left and its economic profile is not very liberal, let alone neoliberal. Uh, so economic issues, although it will be very keen to secure more funding for its heartlands in the countryside and in Norway's uh, less urban uh, regions, you know, I, I don't honestly think that economic questions, perhaps with the exception of oil, will, will be such a big problem. For, uh, for for the negotiations between the, the three parties. You, you never know. I mean, personalities are involved. One of the, the, the two uh, smaller parties in the coalition might see some advantage in making a, in picking a fight about some issue or, or something else, but um, neither of the, those parties really have much else to consider. You know, I suppose they could sort of go into a sort of opposition, semi-opposition role and support a minority Labour government rather than joining it. But then they lose the advantages of actually sitting in government and having the control of resources that they can, they can do something with and make a difference with. So, so my expectation is that it will be reasonably straightforward to construct a, a coalition government that, that has a majority in Parliament. I think you're right. I think sooner than later we will see a centre-left government in Norway, and then all five Nordic countries will be run by center left wing governments. We would also have some practical political impact, or is it merely an interesting coincidence? That's a good question. Things could change, of course. Sweden has an election, has an election in a year. At the moment, the opinion polls are very, very finely balanced. Uh, a lot can happen in a year, and uh, it's perfectly plausible at this stage to see either a left majority or a right majority. What I think uh, we also see among the five, well, what, will, what will soon be five uh, left of centre governments, is still quite a lot of diversity, quite a lot of different uh, views, because in Sweden, the, 
the Social Democrats have been uh, dependent on um, a very, very diverse collection of supporting parties, two of which actually refuse to talk to each other, or one, one, one refuses to talk to, to talk to the other, which is not a very helpful basis for, for actually uh, conducting any, any serious public policy. What you see in, in Finland is a very different party system. You see the absence of the left-right structure uh, or the left-right structure of blocks that we're so familiar with elsewhere. And then it really is an incredibly flexible arrangement where, where the, the winning party, the, the biggest party, is expected to provide the prime minister. But um, almost anybody else can take part in, in a coalition led by that. And so, and so that, that could easily change after the next election in, in Finland. The interesting thing in Denmark is that you have a single party minority government that in some respects is taking a very different path to that found in Sweden, uh, certainly in Sweden, uh, and possibly in Finland and Iceland too, but definitely in Sweden. There you have a, a sort of social de democracy in Denmark, which has taken a much tougher line on things like law and order and immigration. And this, this sort of position has, has won back a lot of the working class support that had drifted to the, the parties of the radical right in Denmark. Uh, and this has not only strengthened the, the Social Democrats in, in Denmark, but also given extra ballast to the, to, to the left bloc at, at the expense of the right. But, but the policy positions that the Danish Social Democratic Party have taken leave Swedish Social Democrats feeling very, very, very trepidatious, apprehensive, uncertain, even hostile. Uh, and that, that will be a very difficult trick for the, the Swedish party to try to emulate. So we do see left of centre governments throughout the Nordic region now, but they look very different to each other. We, we shouldn't, we shouldn't uh, exaggerate uh, the, the commonality between them. You somehow started answering my next questions because I wanted to ask, what are the main traits of the Nordic Social Democratic parties? As you mentioned, Danish government is domestically very tough on migrants, and within the EU, Nordic centre-left-wing governments usually follow the tough fiscal lines. What and whom those parties represent these days? Yeah, that's a really big question and a very, uh, very important question. History matters. The fact that these parties have long and similar historical trajectories in many ways means that they, they still have something in common. The relationship to trade unions, uh, which is still very strong in Sweden, is weaker in, in Denmark and Norway, but, but is not dead by any means. And the same in, in Finland. This counts for something. It, it means that these parties in, in many ways have same sort of cultures and similar sort of cultures and, and, and ways of looking at the world. But you know, this, this gentrification of social democracy, you might say, the, the drift of educated middle-class urban voters, but also members into these parties has changed them in certain ways. And it, um, I would say that the, the Swedish party is now, despite its very close enduring ties to the trade unions, is dominated by this sort of more middle-class, more post-materialist view of the world. A lot of this, this more middle-class left has sort of lost interest in economics, really. It's not really the, the, the distribution of economic wealth that, that they care most 
about anymore. It's, it's more about um, self-fulfillment, the environment, and, and combating evils as they see them of, of, of sexism and racism, so, so equality in a, in a sort of non-material sense. That, I think, is a challenge, that, that duality, that, that um, tension between what you might call traditional social democracy and a new social democracy, which we see in plenty of other countries too. This is an enduring challenge for, for, for the movement. And, and this challenge has sort of had disastrous effects in plenty of European countries. You know, the British Labour Party had a terrible result in 2019. Uh, the Dutch Labour Party has had a series of catastrophic results. The French Socialist Party too. The German Social Democratic Party up until very recently has just, it's been a story of misery and, and decline. And, and the, Greek, the Greek Social Democratic Party really did, really did disappear. In a way, this, this uh, dilemma is, is inescapable, even if it hasn't been quite as damaging to the Nordic Social Democratic Parties yet as it has been elsewhere. Um, but but you know, if, you ask, if you ask what social democracy stands for today, that's, that's a difficult question to answer. Uh, a lot of different things is probably the only, the only reasonable answer I can give. Fair enough, but still. These days, everybody is looking at Germany because elections are swiftly approaching. And it seems the German SPD might have a good shot on winning the elections, which is almost a miracle. I think nobody would expect it a half a year ago. I definitely didn't expect it, I have to admit. Is there any lesson German SPD can draw from the Nordic Social Democratic parties? Because no matter what we say about them, and maybe they are smaller than in the past, they are still running governments. The problem for the German party if it should be interested in emulating what's happened in Denmark and Norway and Sweden, is that the left part of the German party system is so very fragmented, so, so very polarised. While, while the left party in Germany still has this untouchable status, it, it's, it's rather difficult to imagine that the German Social Democrats could build a sort of left-leaning majority coalition in the same way that has been possible in, in the Nordic countries. Because, because there, the radical left has become mainstream. Uh, so, so even the left party in Sweden, which was for uh, uh, many years, one of the more radical such parties in the whole of Europe, and indeed very pro-Soviet, and, and has a, a history of being having very close relations with, with the Soviet Union, and particularly the East German Communist Party. I mean, this, this, is, this is a sort of, it feels remarkable now, but this is, this is the fact. This party has nevertheless managed to reinvent itself as a, a party that uh, really invested a lot in feminism over a long time. And is now going back to a sort of, you, you might call a more traditional social democratic line in which they defend the rights of trade unions and, and advocate higher taxes and, and all, all the rest of it. Anyway, what that means is that it's become a party that is no longer behind a sort of um, cordon sanitaire, where the, the, the Social Democrats and even other parties can consider working with this party in order to achieve certain pieces of legislation, but even to create the basis for a government. And this process is ongoing. That hasn't really got started yet in Germany because of those particular fairly recent historical circumstances. And until 
the broad left finds that it can work together, then it's difficult to, to find a sort of Swedish or Norwegian or Danish solution. This was another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. Subscribe, listen on Spotify, Google Podcast, and on the other platforms. Thank you for listening and stay tuned. Thank you.